You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Joshua 24, beginning in verse 1. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor. And they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led, them, led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. And I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt, and I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, and made the sea come upon them and cover them, and your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand. And you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them from before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you. And also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand, and I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Now, therefore, fear the Lord. Serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight, and preserved us in all the way that we went, and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land, Therefore we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. People said to Joshua, No. We will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. And he said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and he put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. And after these things, Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance at Timnath-Serah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. 
Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamar, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him at Gibbeth, the town of Phinehas, his son, which had been given him in the hill country of Ephraim. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. I'd like to pray. Would you pray with me? Father, Lord, thank you for your word. And Father, as we bring this study of the book of Joshua to a close, I ask God that you would turn our attention once again to the truth of the gospel, that Jesus is our only hope, and that because of his work at the cross and the empty tomb and through the promise that we have of heaven, we can be refreshed, we can be renewed, we can be encouraged, we can be strengthened, we can be rebuked even, we can be loved by you, and we can come into the fullness of your presence where life is found. Father, I pray that you would do that one more time this morning. I trust you to do it in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <coughs> so Joshua 24 is <coughs> it's the final chapter of the uh, history of Israel's conquest and possession of the promised land under Joshua's leadership. But it's more than a story of mere human conquest. It's a story of God's faithfulness to His Word, to His people. And I think um, that before we dive into this final chapter, something that I love to do when we come to the end of a study of any book is to go back and do a quick recap of where we've been. For those of you that have uh, been here for the whole study. For those who haven't, I know the sermons are online. You can go back and you can find them. So I want to take a a look back. So just uh, strap on your uh, seatbelts real quick. We're going to take a quick drive through the book of Joshua. Start with uh, chapters 1 through 5. That's kind of the first section. (coughs) Feel free even to grab your Bibles. Just kind of thumb through as I make my way through it too. might help you kind of stay engaged as we look through it, because I'm going to head kind of fast on our quick drive-by. Chapters 1 through 5 um, describe the preparation of Israel. It's the, kind of the word you can remember for this first section is the word preparation. Uh, they describe the preparation of Israel for the uh, kind of the impending wars that are going to take place before Israel settles in the land. And so what happens in chapter 1 is God commissions Joshua to lead, and then Joshua turns around and commissions Israel to follow. And then uh, Joshua sends two spies into uh, Jericho, and as they're there, they are helped immensely by a prostitute, a woman that you wouldn't think would be the helper, but she helps them immensely. And one commentator (coughs) referred to her, as a harlot with a heart of gold. That's chapter 2. The next thing that happens is Israel crosses the Jordan River during flood season, right? This is kind of a throwback to the crossing of the Red Sea in the book of Exodus. And after they cross that flooded river, they set up a memorial to remember the miracle that God did in their midst. And then in the midst of all that, the text tells us at the end of, or the beginning of chapter 5, that uh, Israel's enemies' hearts melted like hot butter, or melted like butter under a hot knife, be a better way of saying it. And then the final preparation in uh, chapters 1 through 5, before they actually head into battle, is this really kind of a grotesque and bothersome um, situation where they take all the men as adults and circumcise them. Uh, Doesn't sound like any fun. Circumcise all the men in Israel, which is symbolizing that they are set apart for the Lord. And then immediately after that, they have the first Passover celebration in the Promised Land. And in that Passover celebration, they're remembering the Lord's salvation of them in the book of Exodus as he brought them out from under 
uh, the hand of the angel of death. And finally, then, uh, at the end of chapter 5, um, Joshua encounters the commander of the Lord's army, which some would say may be Jesus, and others may say, maybe would say, man, that might be the angel that was posted at the edge of the Garden of Eden. Um, very possible. Um, either argument could be true. But one thing we do learn from that final um, portion of chapter 5 where Joshua encounters the commander of the Lord's army is that we are reminded that the battle belongs to the Lord. The battle does not belong to humans. The battle belongs to the Lord. So again, chapters 1 through 5 really are all about that word, preparation. They're about God preparing us to enter into the fight. And the truth that we learn from it is that God, in fact, is faithful to prepare us to fight against our enemies. And we remember that Ephesians teaches us that our battle, our enemies, are not flesh and blood. Gone are the Facebook fights, right? Annihilated is the political war that we have in our country. Why? Because this is not a fight against flesh and blood. This is a fight against spiritual enemies. And we do not fight with weapons of human carnal nature. We fight with weapons that are spiritual. God prepares us to fight against our enemies. Chapter 6 through 12 are the second section of Joshua, and they are a historical recounting of the actual conquest of the promised land. <clears throat> what do we see here? Jericho falls down flat in chapter 6. Israel gets defeated by Ai because of Achan's uh, sin in chapter 7. Israel makes this really awesome comeback win, right? And, and actually defeats Ai after repenting of Achan's sin as a nation in chapter 8. And then the Gibeonites deceive Israel to keep themselves alive. And Israel gains what? Servers in the temple, chapter 9. Next thing that happens is five Amorite kings get together and they try to wage war against Israel and their newfound Gibeonite allies. And what does God do in response to those five kings banding together? The kings that once stood with hearts melting like butter under a hot knife, band together to come after Israel. What does God do? <clears throat> God makes the sun stand still. What a fantastic day. Man, I'd like to be there that day. Can't wait to see that on the uh, highlight reel in heaven someday. Yeah? makes the sun stand still, and he rains down hailstones on Israel's enemies. And it's this really powerful defeat, kind of like the Kansas City Chiefs winning the Super Bowl. Better, much better. After that, uh, the uh, conquest kind of continues at a really rapid rate in chapter 11 as the southern part of the promised land and the northern part of the promised land get conquered. And then finally, in chapter 12, you might remember chapter 12 was the bridge. Okay? It was a bridge between the last section and the upcoming section, and even the way that chapter 12 was written felt very much like you're standing on that bridge and you're looking back at the land behind you that you just came from and you're looking forward to the land that you're about to go into. It's a summary in chapter 12 of the land that had been conquered on the east side by Moses and then the land that had been conquered on the west side up until this point by Joshua and as we read that, as we visualized what it meant to stand on that bridge, we were reminded that celebrating the past wins is how you trust God with the hardship of the future. Our faith is not a blind faith. Our faith is in a God who acts, has always acted, has the character who never changes in the midst of shifting circumstances. God is kind and faithful to reveal His power to us. Therefore, we can look ahead with assurance and courage. Therefore, we do not need to fear. Chapters 6 through 12, once again, they're all about God's provision in the fight against our enemies. What God does is He provides us with two things, lots of things, but summarizing two things, the strength to stand, and the instruction to walk. The strength to stand, and the instruction to walk as we fight against invisible enemies. Third section of the text in this book, chapters 13 through 21. 
In those chapters, we have a detailed description of the inherited deeds of the promised land. For most of us, it's a very boring section. feels kind of like a downhill, like you've been conquest, fight, 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 and then oh, let's talk about the edges of the land now. And, and for some of us, it will feel very boring. Um, but since the Lord's grace as we studied that section, <clears throat> in that section, chapters 13 through 21, there's still land to be conquered in the future. Nevertheless, all 12 tribes receive their inheritance. Two and a half tribes are allotted their inheritance on the east side. Nine and a half tribes are allotted their inheritance on the west side, chapters 13 and 14. Caleb, remember the story of Caleb? Gotta love Caleb, one of the spies from way back when. He and Joshua, the only two out of the 12, they brought back a good report of the promised land. Because of that faithfulness, they were promised land. So Caleb jumps up as they're coming in there and getting their land. He's like, yo, got some land that was promised to me. I'd like to get that now. 85 years old, like to settle down. At least that's what you would think he would say. But he actually say, hey, I'm 85 years old. And I don't really give a rip if there's a bunch of giants over there. I'll go take them out. So he's a man. He gets up and he goes and takes out the giants and gets his land. Um, and that's in chapters 14 and 15. And then the rest of the promised land, in the end of that section, is allotted to the remaining west side tribes. And then finally, what did we see? We saw refugee cities getting set up for manslayers. And then there were ministry centers dispersed and set up all throughout the land so the Levitical priests could serve God's people and honor Him with their lives. So those are all set up and distributed throughout the land. And what we learn in chapters 13 through 21 is that it's all about God's promise being fulfilled. That's really the big thing. Um, God is faithful. Um, His promises are true. He doesn't lie. No falsehood in Him. So we can trust Him to accomplish what He says He will accomplish. That's kind of where we've been until we jumped into this fourth and final section of the book. Fourth and final section of the book has three chapters in it. And in these three chapters, Joshua preaches three uh, farewell sermons to the nation of Israel. First one's very short, second one's a little bit longer, last one here is much longer than that even. And he preaches these three sermons to Israel as he disperses them throughout the land. So chapter 22, just a few weeks ago, we saw that he sent the two and a half tribes back over to the east side of the Jordan River with a command to do what? To obey God, to love God, to walk in God's ways, to keep His commands, to cling to Him, to serve Him with all their heart. Those east side tribes um, take this very seriously. They set up this altar. It's an altar of witness so that all of Israel would know that they serve the Lord. Kind of like the bumper stickers that we put on the back of our car. They wanted people to know, I serve God. And the result of them doing that was an all-out war that nearly erupted. Why? Because the West Side tribes judged the East Side tribes' motivation prematurely. They didn't listen until they got there. They had good cause, but they judged their motivation prematurely. Now, once a careful hearing was had, the West Side tribes realized that things were not as they seemed, and what happened? Unity was restored. So I'd like to say that that monument, at first, looked like it was going to be a monument of massive division and war, and God then used that to become a monument of unity. Chapter 23, then, uh, was last week. Joshua preached his second farewell sermon. What was that full of last week? It was full of reminders and promises and conditions and commands and warnings. Reminders, promises, conditions, commands, and warnings. And in all this, we had the privilege of looking back on the history of Israel. The privilege of looking back on her failure to listen to Joshua's preaching. We can also look back at the same time in a positive way. We can see the redemptive storyline of the cross of Jesus and the empty tomb of Jesus and the promise of heaven that is our hope. We see the promise of assurance that we have in this. We 
see the condition and the command of obedience that we are called to. We see the careful warning of wandering that we must always be mindful of in last week's chapter. So now we come to the final chapter that we just read. What's happening in this final chapter of Joshua? What's going down? This final chapter, we have Joshua preaching his final farewell sermon to the people of Israel, right? In the first verse, when you look at it, what do you read? You read that Joshua gathered, love that word gathered, could spend a long time, they're not going to. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And what did they do? They presented themselves before God. That's an interesting way of putting it. A human leader gathered all these other leaders, and then what did they do? They presented themselves before God. It's a wonderful picture here that reminds us that when the people of God gather to hear a preacher, they're not gathering to hear the words of a mere man. They're gathering to hear the word of the Lord. This is something the Puritans were intensely committed to. A sermon is not merely a humanly constructed motivational speech. It's a Holy Spirit motivated and you could say empowered or enabled expounding and explanation of the very words of God. Now lest you take what I said and twist it, because I know that there is a Satan who actively works to twist the words of preachers so that people would not hear. Lest you take what I said and twist it, hear me right when I say, my words are not inspired. But my words, I pray, are the explanation and the expounding of the very word of God. Therefore, when we gather, we gather together to hear from God as we do what? Present ourselves before Him. We practice listening. We practice spiritual listening in those times. So, what does the Lord want to say to Israel then? Through Joshua, the preacher man. What does God want to say? A couple things. First, if this is God's self-revelation of Himself, we see that God is our Redeemer. God is our Redeemer. Verses 2-13 through Joshua, God reminds Israel of his redeeming promises throughout the ages, right? And he literally walks Israel down memory lane. He literally takes Israel by the hand and says, let's take a walk. Really, right here what we have is an entire Old Testament survey. That's kind of scary to know that I get to do that for you here in just a moment and it's not going to take five hours. It could. So he literally walks Israel down memory lane, right? He opens the history books. He reminds them of his purpose in redemption. He reminds them that he is the one who called Abraham out of worshiping other gods as he called him to himself. He showed him the land that would be his. He gave him Isaac, the son of promise. And then to Isaac, God gave two sons, Jacob the liar and Esau the hunter. Esau received a portion of land as a result of his conflict with his brother Jacob. But then Jacob, what does he do? He goes down to Egypt with his 12 sons. Who were those guys? The fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel that we're reading about right now. And they lived there in Egypt in slavery to the Egyptians. Kind of cool. The story's not over there. That's a good encouragement for us. Whatever you're walking through today, whatever you sense you're enslaved to, and the story ain't over yet. We serve a redeeming God. The story isn't over. God's people aren't left to rot in their sin. They're not left to rot in their shame. Not left to rot in their slavery to all things unholy. What does God do? He sends a prophetic redeemer in the person of Moses with his assistant Aaron. And through those two men, God lays waste to their enemy oppressors. There's a great picture in Moses and Aaron of the plurality of leadership. If you do that study. What does God do though? He brings his people out of slavery. He wipes out their enemies at the Red Sea. But there's a small stain of rebellion on Israel still. 
even though God's done so many powerful, redemptive things in those moments, still a stain of rebellion left in Israel after God's miraculous intervention. So what does he do? He banishes Israel to wandering around in the wilderness for an entire generation. It's an act of discipline and sanctification in love. So the God we serve is a father who loves us and will not allow his children to walk in disobedience. It's because he loves us so much that he would discipline and correct us. Because to walk in disobedience is to bring destructive harm upon ourselves and to bring dishonor to him. And so God, being a loving father that he is, banishes them to wander around the wilderness for an entire generation as an act of discipline and sanctification. He's making them holy before they enter into the eastern portion of the promised land, before they enter into a deeper space of relationship with him, you could say, or a deeper place of encounter with God. And as he brings them into that eastern portion of the promised land through the wilderness, God destroys their enemies in a massive demonstration of his power and his provision. In Israel's time in the wilderness in the early chapter of the conquest on the east side, it's not without its bumps and its bruises either. Verses 9 through 10 of our text here today remind us that Israel's enemies were fiercely committed to discouraging Israel from their obedience. Let me just say this. Just because you claim the name of Christ doesn't mean that your spiritual enemy is just like, oh, whoop, I'm out of here, I'm done. Ain't the way it goes. They're beaten, they're defeated. They don't know it because they're deceived. In some sense, they come after us even harder, I believe, when we begin to follow the Lord. Why? Because it's part of God's sanctification of our lives. God uses any and all means necessary to shape us and to mold us into the character of His Son. So don't lose heart, friends. Don't lose heart in the midst of your fight. It's not without its bumps and its bruises. It's the same for Israel. Their enemies were fiercely committed to discouraging them from their obedience. So much so. One of their enemy kings sent a false prophet, a dude named Balaam, believe on a talking donkey. King James Version actually calls it an ass. Just wanted to say that. <laughs> God's been speaking through donkeys ever since then. I always wanted to say that too. <laughs> Sorry. Pray that doesn't bring dishonor to God's word. If he can speak through a donkey, he can speak through anybody. Amen. Well, these enemy kings, they send this false prophet, they, and they send him to do what? Well, the text tells us in verses 9 through 10 that these enemy kings send, um, this enemy king sends this false prophet to uh, curse Israel. It's really interesting. His intent was to curse Israel, but God doesn't listen to Balaam. Instead, God basically forces Balaam to bless his people. It's, it reminds me of that old picture from the, the, the story of Joseph, that the things that our enemies mean for our harm, God uses it for our good. What happens in the midst of that, as Joshua teaches us in verses 9 through 10, is that God delivered his people, redeemed his people out of the false prophet's influence and power. And then finally, in verses 11 through 13 of this text, we see that God, through Joshua's preaching, reminds Israel that he is the one who gave them the victory over their enemies in the conquest of the promised land. Okay? He gave their enemies to them in defeat. He went before them in a swarm of hornets. He gave them cities to live in, vineyards for their personal provision. And all of this, none of this was gained by their own strength. None of it was gained by their own bow or their own sword or their own ability to build. All of this happened because of the miraculous, redeeming, provisionary power of the Lord. So our God is a redeeming promise keeper. Second thing I see in the text, verses 14 through 18, is that God commands our obedience. So first we see that God is a redeeming God. The second thing we see here is that God commands our obedience. Now the command to obedience in these verses is established or founded, you might say. It's established or founded on the truths of the previous verses. In other words, 
uh, obedience is commanded based upon the character of the one who is giving the command. So God is not an overbearing father. He's not an overbearing father who is bent on our submission for his own pleasure or personal advancement. God, God is a loving father. He's a loving father who's redeemed his people from slavery to their enemies by his own free will. And I would argue, and I think the scriptures would argue, that the only one who actually has true free will categorically, God. <coughs> He's the only one that's absolutely free from corruption to decide and to choose and to plan to do what he does. Nothing in this text tells us that anything provoked God to do any of this work of redemption other than His own predetermined plan and promise. It's His sovereignty that we're talking about in the midst of that. In other words, the God who has loved you unconditionally, He is the Father who calls you to unwavering obedience to His commands for your good and for his glory. Well, this is what then leads Joshua to command Israel to fear God, to serve him sincerely, to reject any false substitutes in verse 14. And then you got the famous command of verse 15 that has landed on Christian t-shirts and coffee mugs from the Christian underground subculture for eons and decades. It's great. They're cool. They just miss context and it always grinds on me when you miss context. Because even when you read that and you take you yank it out of context, it's like, oh, you, you need to make this decision. And it's true, we do. But then all this emphasis is paced, placed on us making a decision <coughs> out from under the sovereign hand of God and away from the picture of the redeeming God that he is. <coughs> that famous command of verse 15 where Joshua instructs Israel to choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now dwell. Now, there's lots of application there for us. We each grew up with some kind of religious background in our family, and we all live in the context of a nation that has all sorts of idolatry erupting every day. So God's saying, choose whom you're going to serve here. Obey me, not them or them. That command is followed by Joshua's declaration where he states, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's almost as though Joshua has led all these years serving the Lord in front of them. He's just reminding them one more time before he passes away that I'm a rock. I ain't going nowhere. I'm going to continue serving the Lord like I always have in front of you. Basically, what's happening here, what's being said here, is that the choice is yours. <clears throat> you can either serve the gods of slavery and abuse, or you can serve the God of redemption. Joshua says, I know who I'm choosing to serve. I know who I've always served. Who are you going to bow down to? That's his question underneath all that. Who are you going to bow down to? The sad story for Israel is moving forward. They claim to bow down to God while actually bowing down to the idols of the nation around them. They use really religious language to cover up the fact that their hearts are actually far from God. Let that never be us. The reality in verse 15, as verse 15 clarifies, um, is that if Israel does choose to serve any other so-called God, then they are in effect saying that it's evil to serve the God who has redeemed them, and therefore they prove that they don't love God who loved them first. Now, of course, Israel's answer in the text is exactly what you want to hear, right? They confirmed their devotion to the Lord. They confirmed their absolute rejection of any other gods in light of the fact that God is their redeeming Father. So we learn here that our redeeming God has every right. If there's anybody who's entitled to anything, it's God, not you and I. The thing that we're entitled to is the thing that makes grace and mercy look so good. We're entitled to pay the price for our sin. Our redeeming God has every right to command our obedience and our devotion to Him because He has been so good to us in redemption. 
The third thing that we see in verses 19 through 28 is that God is holy and jealous. The word jealous, when we think about our God, is not a word that we often think about. Jealousy brings up these negative connotations for us. God is holy and jealous. See, it's, it's a really good thing to commit our lives to obedience, to our loving and redeeming Father. It's a good thing. But this commitment that we're talking about from the last section, it, it, it's, it's a very serious matter. Following the Lord in obedience is not a matter of joining a social club or aligning ourselves with a specific political party. Following the Lord is a matter of internal importance that holds immediate consequences on our lives. Joshua did not want to fail God's people by calling for their obedience and then settling for an emotional response. So he pressed the matter further in verses 19 through 28. Um, he, he ups the ante, so to speak, lays it on thick, does everything possible that he can in his own human strength to help Israel see that their devotion to the Lord must be more than a mere emotional decision or intellectual assent. Israel must experience the truth that the God who calls them to himself is a righteous and holy and faithful and redeeming and jealous God. God isn't playing games with His people. Therefore, the people who claim to know Him should not play spiritual games either. So, Joshua responds to Israel's verbal proclamation of their devotion to the Lord by doing what? He explains that they are unable to serve the Lord the way the Lord calls them to. You see, God is perfectly righteous, He's holy, He's perfect, and He will not share His bride with any other lovers. He will not share His bride with any other lovers. See, if God catches His people in the arms of other lovers, He's going to respond in justified anger, and He's going to bring harm to them after doing so much good for them in the past. And upon hearing this, Israel responds. They respond in a way that we should respond to. They respond by doubling down on their commitment. And that leads Joshua to explain that their double-down proclamation is going to be a witness against them, just like in a court of law, just like a signed contract, just like a marriage covenant, proving that they took the vow as lovers of God who have been loved by God. See it all connecting? Now, now Israel must put away foreign lovers. Can I just ask you what foreign lovers you have in your life right now that you have refused to put away? They must put away any foreign lovers. They must remain steadfastly and wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord. At this point, Israel commits to serving and obeying the Lord in verse 24. And so Joshua actually writes this covenant into the book of the law of God. It's basically like filing your marriage certificate with the state. It becomes a binding agreement, a binding contract between God and his people. It's based on only one who's going to be faithful, God himself. And then as a visual reminder, Joshua sets up a rock of witness so that Israel may never forget all that the Lord has spoken to them and all that they have committed to, lest they ever begin to relate to their God like unfaithful lovers. Which, if you know the story, is exactly what happens moving forward. And with this final declaration, Joshua concludes his final sermon to the nation of Israel. And he sends them to their homes in the promised land. And what we're left with here is a final picture of God as our holy and jealous Father. He is perfect and He will share us with no one. Last thing that we see in the text, verses 29 through 33, is that God works on our behalf. You see, when we go to work each day, we can easily fall into the trap of believing that we are working for our own self-promotion, our own self-provision, right? 
We get paid a certain amount to work, to advance the cause of our bank accounts, to advance the cause of our livelihoods, to advance the cause of our social status, to advance the cause of our employer's production. And while there is some truth to all those things, all those truths are secondary to a much bigger truth that we ought not to um, make secondary to those. That truth that should be primary is that we are actually called to work and called to serve in our communities for the glory of God first and for the advancement of His name because He has worked on our behalf for our good throughout the ages and He will continue to do so until the end of the age. Easy for us to get this mixed up. These truths were simply um, no less important for Israel as they entered into the promised land. The temptation to begin to believe that all their hard work in conquering the promised land was for their own self-advancement and provision would be a very real threat. Uh, They could easily begin to look at all their hard work of their leaders and begin to idolize their leaders as uh, the mere examples to follow in their establishment of their earthly kingdom in the land. I chose my words carefully. Mere examples of an establishment of a nation in a physical land. That would be something that would be elevated above the actual biblical calling throughout the ages to establish a spiritual kingdom in a physical place. And they would get this upside down from this point forward just as we do often as well. Again, while it's true that Israel was being established in the land, while it it, it is true that this required hard work and it required faithful leadership from their human leaders, the main reason that all this happened was to do what? Was to bring attention to their hardworking God. Was to bring attention to their hardworking God. Not their hardworking human leaders. This is why someone in Israel's history, most likely added these final notes in these five verses later. These verses, we learn that Joshua died at the ripe old age of 110 years old after serving the Lord faithfully. He was buried in the homeland that was given to him by the Lord. As a result of Joshua's uh, courageous leadership, Israel served the Lord faithfully throughout Joshua's generation in light of God's hard work on their behalf. And just in case some future generation in Israel, probably living a good thousand years later under some kind of um, external rule, just in case uh, while they lived under that rule, just in case they began to lose hope under that oppression, that they would ever enter into the promised land again, the Lord is reminding His people in these final verses, through whatever author added these final verses, <coughs> of all the other faithful leaders that he had provided for them. Faithful human leaders, Joseph, Jacob, Eleazar, Aaron, Phinehas, not to mention Joshua. There's six names mentioned in these five verses on purpose because God never does anything by accident. While there are some details in those closing verses that would be a lot of fun to expand on, I think the main point of the section um, is to remind us that God has always worked through human leaders to provide a way of escape from our oppressors to bring us into the fullness of his presence. So God works on our behalf. He never stops working to bring us into the fullness of his presence. So in conclusion, in conclusion to this chapter and to our study of this entire book, I want to remind us of what we've learned. First, from the broad recap of the book, We learn that God prepares us to fight against our enemies. He provides us with the strength and the instructions to fight our enemies. And He is faithful. His promises are true. So that first section is all about preparation, provision, and promises. That would be a good way to remember. Okay, Preparation, provision, and promises. And then from our study of this final chapter today, we learn that God... He is a redeeming promise keeper. He has every right to command our obedience and devotion. He is perfect and he will not share us with any other lovers and he never stops working to bring us into the fullness of his presence. The question, as always, is why does this matter? 
What good will all this information serve us? What difference will it make in our lives in this century, in this country, in this city, in our family? Working out in. What difference is this going to make? Man, we, we come to the Bible with our questions about real life issues, don't we? Real life struggles. Struggle with loneliness. We get angry at politics. So angry that we tear our closest friends apart sometimes. We fight the distance in our marriages. We lawn for deep and meaningful friendships. We get consumed with fear when we come face to face with sickness and disease. Just like in this season, am I right? We long for the comfort of job security. We wish we had more influence on our employers. We obsess over our kids' futures. We wish we could control their behavior. We long for someone to love us unconditionally. And we medicate the pain of our, of our losses with addictions. I say this all the time. Just because you're not addicted to pornography doesn't mean you're not an addict. And just because you've never gone to an AA class doesn't mean you're not an addict. The basic definition of addiction is sin. And every one of us, according to my Bible, in this room are sinners. So therefore, we are all addicted. And the basic addiction is self. Our basic slavery that we live under is slavery to self. God came to set us free from that. You may not believe that you're addicted. You may think you're okay, but you're not. Deep down inside. We medicate the pain of our losses with addictions that range from everything from overeating to overbuying to jabbing a vein to snorting a line. A long story short, regardless of what you walked in here with today, we all have our stories of pain, and loss, and fear, and sin. We all long for some kind of hope. We long for some kind of peace. We long for some kind of comfort that will not fade with the next onslaught of temporary circumstances being screamed at us by the online media prophets. We long for that. You maybe have medicated those longings for a long time. But this is where the message of Joshua intersects with the message of the gospel. The reality is that all of the great leaders mentioned at the end of the book, Joshua, Joseph, Jacob, Eliezer, Aaron, and Phinehas, you want to know something about them? That they all have in common is that they're dead. They're dead. Their bones are in a grave somewhere. There's only one human leader in all of history that has a claim of victory over our worst enemies, and his name is Jesus. Verse 31 reminds us of all the work that God did on behalf of Israel. Then the rest of Scripture is a reminder of all the work that Christ has done and will do on our behalf. You see, the questions that we need to ask today are these. Am I willing to ask Jesus to prepare me for the fight against my enemies? Am I willing to be corrected by the Holy Spirit if I've gotten my crosshairs on the wrong enemy? Do I really desire to live in obedience to the Lord? What, what promises do I need to remember as motivation for my obedience? How am I placing my faith and my hope in the kingdoms of this earth? Where have the gods of politics and vocation and nation become my masters? What have I traded the real hope of heaven? The true promised land. Where have I traded that hope for the false assurances of this world? Where? See, Jesus went before us and he defeated our enemies, Satan, sin, and death. Why? So that we can be prepared to fight against demonic oppression. 
sinful temptation and the curse of death through the power of the Spirit. You see, the Spirit of the living God enables and empowers us to live in obedience to the commands of God's Word as He leads us into the truth that does what? Sets us free to worship our Father in spirit and in truth. You see, Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He created our faith. He enables our faith. He helps us to believe and to trust in Him when life is spiraling out of control. Jesus says that He is our friend. And that no one can snatch us out of His hand. Such a great promise to know. You cannot be lost once you've been found by Him. You're secure in His hand because His Father has given us to Him. When He says that, we can rest in the assurance of our salvation instead of the false assurance of our works. God has provided redemption for us in the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus so that by His grace and through our faith in Him, we might come into His presence in obedient submission to His commands. You see, Jesus is not the kind of husband who demands our service while He runs around looking for different wives to satisfy His desires. Jesus gave Himself as our sacrifice so that we can be wholeheartedly devoted to Him as the only lover of our souls. And even when we recognize that we've played the harlot and that our hands are stained with sin, we can trust in the truth that Jesus is our true Joshua, our true Savior. He's always been at work. He will always be working on our behalf to bring us into the fullness of the presence of our Father in heaven, which is our true promised land. This is the great hope of the intersection of the book of Joshua with the message of the gospel. It's the great hope that we have, my friends. It's the reason that we turn to communion here in a few moments. It's the reason that we worship. It's the reason that we gather. Because our hope is in Christ and in nothing that this world offers. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for this study. Thank you for bringing us to the end of it. Thank you for the picture of the cross and the empty tomb. The promise of heaven. And I pray, Father, that you would... Come and inhabit our praises as we turn our attention to you in song and in communion. Trust you to do that work. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.